Well, welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, everybody, as we continue our second series, The Art of Living. And this is, as usual, hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company that I formed with a number of colleagues to enable people live longer, healthier lives by getting the right information at the right time in their disease course. And of course, in collaboration with my lovely colleagues at Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University, where I'm a Changemaker Ambassador. Now, today I have a most interesting guest with me. It was a serendipitous meeting whilst I was on my honeymoon recently in the island of Iona. No surprises there. It inspired Iona, our company. And we did go there for a week of absolute bliss and serenity. And whilst there, I met this lovely retired consultant orthopaedic hand surgeon and his wife who've been going to Iona for quite a number of years being a member of the Friends of Kagandu Hospital, which is a 300-bed hospital serving about 100,000 patients and one of the 10 largest rural hospitals and a major teaching centre also. And since retiring from the NHS, he's been devoting a lot of his energies to this. He was an eminent surgeon in the NHS and once upon a time assisted in surgery on Prince William in actual fact after a rugby injury, although he's far too humble to admit this. He's also very interested in sustainability and any charitable venture may often run its course. But because there's an excellent river alongside the hospital, they're going to harness the power of this river in a hydroelectric power project that's very ambitious and is currently fundraising for this to generate enough power for the hospital to ensure its sustainability, but also reducing the risk to patients, which I think is very fascinating. And finally, he's such a good person, but has had a difficult life himself. And we're going to go through some personal issues and how they have influenced his own art of living. So join me in a very warm welcome to Mr. Peter Lunn. Peter, you're very welcome. Thank you, Millie. Thank you very much. And um, it was lovely to to meet on Iona. And yeah. uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me onto your podcast. You're very welcome. And when we were on Iona, I mentioned, of course, that I had interviewed uh, Mr. Donald Samet, a fellow hand surgeon. And there's so much that you two have in common. You know, Donald was so involved in the leprosy uh, work. And I know that your hospital started out as a leprosy centre, didn't it? So that's kind of what got this discussion going, I think. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And it's it's fascinating to see the history of the hospital and also the history of medicine, seeing what's happened with leprosy over the years. And sadly, it, it shouldn't be still happening. But unfortunately, there is still leprosy in, in Uganda. Yeah, and I'm sure we could have a separate podcast altogether on the topic. But, you know, you're obviously very knowledgeable about Africa. And I alluded to it in my introduction that you actually grew up in Uganda. And I was hoping that you might start off and tell me a little bit about your background and, and how that came about, that you did grow up in Uganda and, and how it influenced your thinking. It's interesting how when you're brought up, you you just think that's normal uh, for for everyone. And um, so my my first five years, in fact, were were in Egypt, actually, where my father was a, a missionary doctor there. And then um, we came back to this country for a brief time, and then went to Uganda. And so um, I did some primary schooling in in. Kampala in Uganda and then for secondary schooling my parents gave me the option to either come back to this country for schooling or to go to uh, school in Kenya and I decided to go to Kenya because 
I knew that they wouldn't be able to afford me to go out to Uganda during the holidays, perhaps only once a year. And I just loved life there. I, I really enjoyed it. It was an outdoor life. It was um, the, there were so many good things about it, and um, I loved the people there. There were lots of things that I enjoyed. I I finished my secondary schooling there, and then I taught for a year in a primary school just on the Rift Valley at about 10,000 feet in, in Kenya. And then I came back to this country and did my medical training at Guy's. Oh, that's where I was a consultant, Peter. Did you know that? Yes. Well, I, I remember you saying and and that's why I, I thought that was fascinating that, yes. That more, more serendipity. I mean, Guy's is a wonderful hospital, isn't it? It is, and I, I loved it. I was actually born at Guy's. My father was a registrar there when I was born. <laughs> so uh, so I, I feel a certain affinity to it, yes. Mm. And you mentioned to me that Africa was a part of yourself. I mean, I'm not surprised hearing that you grew up not just in Uganda, but in Egypt and in Kenya as well. You really have embedded in you, haven't you? Yes, and it's interesting how it, it really does affect you. I I, um, I think what I've realised being back in this country and working here for many years, how easy it is just to accept our norms from where, where we are. And the reality is that life is quite different, not, not that far away. Nowadays, we can get on a plane and, and in a very short time, we can be in a completely different type of existence. That's part of the thing that has sort of made me really think seriously about the whole issue of uh, Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where there are hardships. Life is difficult. Uh, Life is short. Life is precarious. So it's uh, quite interesting just sort of looking at how I found myself just forgetting that really for, for some time. And then it was reawakened when I went back and revisited Uganda. And I, I felt that that's something I, I don't want to forget. I need to to keep remembering that. Yeah. And I was struck when you were telling me about some of the differences. You gave me a, a simple example about this concept of loans. You know, when people loan each other money in Uganda, if there's hardship, there may not be the expectation to repay it. And that can make it difficult, of course, when you're trying to run a business over there. Give us a little bit of insight into that cultural difference between East and West and how that might, you know, affect, for example, running a hospital. I think in in a poor society, I think everybody is aware of people's disadvantages and, and so on. And so people do try and help each other. And in a poor community, if um, there happens to be somebody who's got more money than they need, then other people will inevitably want to borrow from them. And they will then try to to pay them back. But almost inevitably, they, they won't be able to. And it's made me think, really, that there you have a, a sort of system where the person who has more money than they need, they're able to, to lend some to somebody, um, they will end off a little bit poorer, but the poor person will have ended up a, a little bit better off. Perhaps they were able to send their child to school or to do get some medical treatment for their wife or something like that. 
And so in a way that sort of evens out. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking um, in terms of extrapolating it to what's happening here in the UK and, and Boris's levelling up. Do you think this is a form of levelling up, but it's done within the community? Well, I mean, I think what worries me about the systems here is that the poor are given loans at significant interest and it means that they they can't afford something it may be a piece of furniture or a car or something they they can't afford it at the beginning but they're going to end up paying more than they couldn't afford in the first place and so the system makes them poorer mm. than they would have been if they'd paid it off first of all and the person who's loaned it, who who has more money than they need, gets richer. And it seems to me that that's an injustice, really. But it's perhaps oversimplifying things. And I'm, I'm sure there are reasons why loans may well be very beneficial. When you look at the value of money, because I think Africans quite rightly and people in poor countries don't value money in the same way as we do. And uh, if they've got something they can eat, that is enormously valuable. If they've got clean water they can drink, that's brilliant. But if they've got a coin, it's it's not as valuable to them as it is to us. We we value money much more than they do. Yeah, I think the whole concept of values is intriguing, isn't it? I mean, you're a spiritual person and your hospital is a mission hospital. You've told us that your dad was a missionary physician, isn't that right? So it's it's in your bones to be caring uh, in your modalities. And you told us a lot of stories that even though maybe other religions aren't Christian around your hospital, but that you've served them even in the time of Idi Amin. I thought one of those stories was, was quite interesting to highlight that religion doesn't necessarily equate to values. You can have the values of community and kindness w- without um, necessarily sharing the same religion. Absolutely, yes. It's not exclusive. And in fact, um, one of the interesting sort of ironic things is that I, I think sometimes feel that religious people are are better than average, whereas the the reality is that people seek religion because they realize, usually I think it's because we realize how bad we are, how often we fail, even our own standards, let alone standards that God has uh, set us. I think we have to um, be realistic about it, and, and it's... It's because we realize our inadequacies that we we um, need God in our, in our lives. And you mentioned that about 40% of the hospitals in Uganda were, were led by the church. Is that right? Yes. The government has uh, hospitals and health centers around the country. But um, yes, just under half are actually run by independent organizations, mostly originally mission hospitals, but now many of them run by the Church of Uganda. Mm. So they're they're still mission hospitals, but they're um, locally rather than by a foreign mission. And that's what's happened with Kaganda. It started off with a mission and then it it went to Tear Funds, the charity, and then um, to the Church of Uganda. But the, the problem with that is that the church doesn't have much money at all. So the hospitals don't have any 
subsidies or anything from from the church to any significant extent. They get some subsidies from the government for treating conditions like malaria, but otherwise they depend on outside donors. And I think that's one of the things we've become aware of is that we really would long to help them to get to a state where they don't have to depend on outside donors because um, that's a precarious form of existence, really. And um, in in our charity, we're, we're all getting older. So we, we wonder what's the future, really, for the hospital. And, that, and that's why we, we really want to do something that will give it a chance of um, becoming at least moving towards becoming self-sufficient in the future. So clearly the position of the hospital set within the mountains and near this fabulous, abundant river with the plentiful water supply represents a good opportunity to bring together science, technology and health all in one go. Tell us a little bit about this project that you've been working on. It was about six or seven years ago, we we asked somebody to come and really as a sort of consultancy to look at the hospital and to say, well, you know, what things should we as a charity be doing to help them for the future? And he looked at all the sort of different aspects of the hospital and realized that the patients have to pay fees. And so obviously one of the options is that you increase the fees so that the hospital can make ends meet. But he said, you know, you, you cannot do that in a in a community where it's a subsistence existence. They're growing what they need to eat. They may have a small amount of money from cash crops, but not much. So he said, you've got to generate some money. And really, the only way you can do that is to uh, use the natural resources. And uh, we're spending a lot of money on electricity. The, the national grid does come to the hospital, but the national grid is very unreliable. And every time there's a power cut, and at the moment it's almost daily, sometimes for up to eight hours, then you have to start a generator. And in the interval between the power cut and the generator starting, even though we now have automatic switchgear, it still takes some time, sometimes a few minutes. And that's a dangerous time if you're in theatres, if patients are on life support, in the neonatal units. So um, it's a danger for patients, and patients have died, sadly. And so um, he said, if you can get a reliable electricity supply, if you're not going to have to be paying a lot for using the generator, you will save a lot of money. And in fact, that's um, what he recommended. He said, you you need to build yourselves a hydroelectric uh, scheme. And um, I have to say, that was that was not the answer we wanted, really. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's interesting that having looked into it, how sensible that was. So that's what we've embarked on, and, that, and in fact, we've we've completed the first phase of that, which we funded as a charity, and we got some money from the government, who have set up a power line. They they put in two hundred thousand pounds. Didn't you tell me that at one point in time the power line was cut, or was the pole chopped in half, or something? That often happens around hospitals. Yes, it was unfortunate that the, <laughs> the, uh, the power line. Were, 
the power line was set up before we'd got the hydroelectric scheme in. It was for us, it was enormously encouraging that the government took that step. Unfortunately, for the people nearby, I'm not sure whether it was the firewood that he wanted from the uh, <laughs> uh, telegraph pole um, or it was the cable itself. Both are really quite valuable. Uh, yes, that was unfortunate, really. So that the cable was um, part of the uh, line was was broken down. But in fact, they very wisely now they've put it up, and we've now got power going through it. Not not from our hydroelectric scheme yet, but the sensible thing obviously was to put power through it. So it's a disincentive for people to chop it down mm. and uh, steal the cable. And um, so, yes, fortunately, they they very kindly did that, and it's um, it's there waiting for our turbines to get going. Well, it's a good sign that the government have invested money. So this is a, a project that will have buy-in from not just the friends of Kagandu, but the government, and presumably some external philanthropic support that you're going to go out and externally try and gather to raise. I think you mentioned 1.3 million in total was the was the budget for the project. Oh, it was originally it was one one point three million, mm. and we our original design was to generate more than ten times uh, what we needed to, to for the hospital's needs, and uh, we would sell the excess to the national grid. But um, we've been quite fortunate in a way that the pandemic having having done the first stage which will be uh, the same whatever size scheme you have we had to build a weir across the river um now the next phase depends on the capacity of the scheme and um we realized that the tariff that's being paid for the electricity has been reducing because a lot of countries are having financial problems at the moment and it's worse in africa than it is elsewhere perhaps and the the pandemic has made that worse as well so we realized and were advised that the tariff may not be really profitable and it's not out of the question that if things get worse in the future that the tariff might be stopped altogether so we basically have de-scoped we've downsized the scheme so that we have enough to supply the hospital for the foreseeable future. We're not going to sell to the grid. It makes it a cheaper capital cost, is, is brought it down to 900,000, um, although, as I say, 200,000 has been given by the government. It's the perfect sum of money, Peter, for Prince William's Earthshot Prize. I, th I think you should mention it to him or do an application. You're amazingly active at uh, sort of finding out these these things, million. That's brilliant, and uh, you know it's something we we really ought to to look at. We're we're willing to look at any anything that anybody who will support our cause really. Mm. Well, I think it's very good, and just taking you back into the nuts and bolts of this. So, this is at Live Longer, the podcast, and we're talking about how you improve the quality and the length of life and people in underprivileged communities like in Western Africa. So you have a 100,000 catchment area. Will this project generate improved quality of life for your patients in terms of de-risk, but it will also enable you to serve a wider community and bring more health to a larger number of people with this project? What is the impact on the health of Western Africa in Uganda? 
yes, it's Western Eastern Africa. It's, so it's it's actually we're right in the middle of Africa actually. So um, we're just on the eastern side of the, the midline. But it's um, no, it's important because we we take our tend to take our health service for granted. But if we can get a service that is accessible, easily accessible for everyone. Then we found, for instance, a few years ago that we started subsidizing the fees for the children. And we suddenly found that the case mix changed completely, that instead of parents holding on to the children until they were really at death's door and then bringing them into hospital to avoid having to pay the fees, they were bringing them earlier. And it was much better, and and the the death rate reduced. Everything was much more satisfactory. And we feel that if if people can feel they have an accessible health service, that will make an enormous difference to them. And at the moment, I mean, they still have high uh, maternal mortality rates. Mothers dying in uh, during childbirth babies dying in the neonatal period and and young children dying so that and they're, they're generally treatable conditions almost all of them mm. and so we feel that anything we can do to help reduce the revenue costs of the hospital to help make treatment more accessible will make an enormous difference to the whole community yes and the community do value the hospital they they've been very supportive and they're supportive of the hydro scheme as well, which is good. And presumably, you know, this is a pioneering project that you could then franchise roll out to other hospitals and areas in Africa. So it may not just be for Eastern Africa, but you could roll this out to other parts of Africa, which you're also struggling with sustainability and foreign investment versus keeping the hospitals going so that people can access the service sooner and, and prevent serious health issues and, and tackle them much earlier in the disease courses you've just outlined there, particularly with maternal fetal mortality. Yes, well, it's it's interesting that the consultant engineers that we have uh, employed for our, this scheme, who are based in this country, they're actually working on three projects in Uganda at the moment. And our, our project manager has already... Um, had experience of six hydroelectric schemes in East Africa. So it really is something that is um, developing. Um, and um, and we, we're just so fortunate, blessed, we feel, that um, we're by a, a suitable river. And we've got these lovely mountains. The mountains are absolutely beautiful. And yet they're difficult to live in because a lot of the villages are not accessible by road. You have to go up footpaths. And so if somebody gets ill, if somebody gets an obstructed labor, it really is a serious issue. Mm. And we need decent prenatal, antenatal care uh, in the villages, in the, in the community. And that's what, one of the projects that goes on at the hospital is a, a community uh, health project to educate people and train people. Well, isn't it amazing how we take these things for granted? Everybody loves to bash the NHS. Personally, I think the NHS is fantastic and I have given my service to the NHS and I'm a very strong supporter of the NHS. And we take it for granted that our government provides this and that we as a population, you know, have made this, this happen. And you 
then listen to the story of people who are so much less fortunate. And that translates into reduced um, longevity for their lives, doesn't it? Yes, very much so. The life expectancy, I first went back in about 1980, no, 1995, I think it was, to Uganda. And um, then they were just at the end of the, well, the peak really of the HIV epidemic really and um it was just beginning to turn they were uh, had a, a lot of measures which were reducing the incidence then i think the average life expectancy for uh, adult men was was about 36 years or something whereas now it's over 50 so uh, it's certainly improved that's very, very good. And, you know, talking about life expectancy, you yourself and your lovely wife, Liz, have had to face the ultimate tragedy in any person's life in that losing a child. Now that we spoke about this before we came on air and, and I know you've kindly agreed to share some of your thoughts about how you and, and your lovely daughter, you know, made the very best of, you know, her life to live the best life she had as long as she could to have the best life. I mean, I feel somewhat qualified to talk about this because my own child was very sick, but thankfully survived. So I'm interested to hear how you survived this challenge in your life. Yes, well, it's interesting when you're involved in medicine and you you come across these sort of issues. And Liz actually worked at Guy's for a time. She was a medical social worker, oh. if, if people are old enough to remember what a medical social worker was. But she... She used to do work on the pediatric wards. And interesting, one of her patients that she got very close to was a, a young girl with cystic fibrosis. Mm. And she had um, difficult home circumstances and found it very difficult to deal with the condition. Bless her heart, she, she died really quite young. So you can imagine when, um, when we had our first child and... Um, she didn't thrive too much um, to start off with. She she took a long time to put on weight and so on, and eventually was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. So we had to come to terms with that. We we realised what it involved. So we had to adapt really, and we were we were very blessed that our next two children didn't have cystic fibrosis, but. Um, as a family, we felt, well, okay, we don't know how long our daughter Kathy was going to live. And so we felt, well, what we needed to do is to make the most of the time that she'd got. And we were thinking in terms of her living till she was about 10 or perhaps early teens. But um, basically, we, we made a lot of things like celebrations of birthdays. Everybody's birthday was a good time to get family around we had a real celebration and um, we also made a thing about holidays we used to have fun holidays at least I thought they were fun I think they did as well the uh, we used to go on cycling holidays I got a tandem oh. and uh, Kathy could go on the back of the tandem and um, we had great fun doing that and we we went on some sailing holidays so they were all things that she could get involved in and she loved it mm. so we had fun and um but always you you have to come to terms with the fact that it's always a bit of a shadow hanging over you you know that her life is um going to be limited 
but thankfully, I mean, she lived till she was 33. Hmm. But, you know, it's still, we, we miss her to this day. She died 15 years ago. But, uh, no, but she was full of life. She enjoyed life. And she she actually wrote um, a, a little thing for her funeral because she said she, she was very extrovert. Oh, Kathy was. <laughs> and hmm. uh, she, um, she said, I, I can't imagine having a big party for me and me not saying anything <laughs> so she said i've got to say something and so she um, wrote this um wonderful thing and but she said you know she said i don't know why um i had to have cf but all i can say is i have had an absolutely wonderful life and um i've enjoyed life and um she she also said that she she felt i mean her faith was was very important to her, and she felt that she'd um, learnt really that she had uh, a trust in God, and she felt that that was the, the strength that she had to help her to enjoy life now and to look forward to life after death. And um, so she was um, she was a happy. No, it was interesting. She she went to a church in Leicester, and um, after she died, some of the people went to her husband, who was there, and said, we're really sorry to hear that Cathy died. We hadn't realized she was that ill. And you see, and it, it would have amused Cathy enormously because, I mean, for the last six months of her life, she couldn't walk very far at all. She was on oxygen the whole time. She was in a wheelchair. So she was going into a hospital and wheel uh, to church, sorry, in a wheelchair, and uh, people were talking to her, and they said they didn't realise she was that ill, and and I just felt that it was encouraging to us and and to her that really a tribute to her that she didn't let the disease define her. Mm. She had something that was stronger than that, and so. Um, I'm hearing yeah. this strong sense of fun, sense of humour, good family around her, having a purpose. Her purpose was, of course, to live as long as she could, as well as she could. And I loved that story you told me when she was waiting for an X-ray in the Brompton. This lady came in hobbling on crutches and said, um, oh, you don't want to be as old as me. And she said, well, that's actually the one thing I do want to do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's a great story. Yes. Oh, yes. That must have been just so hard for you. And here you are still laughing, giving back to other people, using your knowledge in the medical world to help the people in Uganda and and also using your innovation and creativity and thinking about the world through a different lens, you know, where you do want to have a more sustainable hospital, which I think is hugely admirable and coming up with this very fantastical hydroelectric power idea. And I hope that you do get funded. And for anybody listening today, I encourage you to donate. And um, they've got a target. And clearly, you know, the more little bits everybody puts in, the sooner you'll reach that target and the more people whose lives will be impacted for the best. So, you know, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, Peter. Thank you, Mary. Well, we've really enjoyed meeting you and thank you so much for what you're doing. And yes, we really do appreciate that. Thank you.
Thank you. And thank you to all my listeners for tuning in this evening. And I hope you've enjoyed it and found that inspirational on so many levels, not just Peter's work in the hospital, but also how he's managed to deal with his own family situation and still has a smile and a sense of humour and has his faith and sense of purpose in life. It's very inspiring. And we're going to continue this little series on Africa. We've been very fortunate to attract a number of amazing people to interview, including Toby Tanser, who set up Shoes for Africa, who ran the New York Marathon, literally organised and ran it and ran his shoes off to raise funding to set up not one but two hospitals in Africa. And Dame Anne Logue, who is a very inspirational business person, philanthropist and has a number of hospitals in Africa as well. These are just two of the people that we plan to interview in the coming weeks on our little series about the health of African people. So tune in and please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you listen on Apple Podcasts or you're always welcome to give us feedback on hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.